0: hey there welcome to the pine island experience podcast i'm joanna anderson with my husband trig v. each of our episodes will be conversations with fellow pine islanders
1: the goal of our podcast is to share with you our experiences what we have found to be fun and what makes the pine island experience so unique
2: The trail itself, even just the, the thousand foot that's open, the trail itself is open sunrise to sunset every day. So we don't lock our parking lot. We have gates on our parking lot. We did, after Ian, lock the parking lot. We left it unlocked during Ian in case people had to move their cars there because we want there's a little bit higher ground than uh, some of the folks around us. So we left it open. But once once we realized that none of the folks used it, which is fine, <laughs> we locked it. So but right now our parking lot is not not locked. You're welcome to go on the trail. We do ask that you adhere to the posted signs. So if there's a if there's a sign that says no public access beyond this point, please respect that. It's for public safety. It is, you know, it's one of those things that we take very seriously, not only the archaeological aspect but the public safety aspect. We want people on the trails. We want to open our trail up. We want people to enjoy our trails because there are amazing things like woodpeckers and osprey and owls and things like that. We want people to see those things too. Um, but for safety, we have to make sure that we're allowing that only when it's safe for everybody. So, and we, you know, we know that people walk there early in the morning and late in the evening, So uh, we want to make sure that they're still able to do that, walk their dog and things like that. So the trails are open, the thousand foot sunrise to sunset.
0: You just heard Anisha Kareem the operations manager for the Randell Research Center, encouraging people to come out now because the trails are open. After you hear Anissa's inspirational conversation about the history of the Randell Research Center and Donald and Patricia Randell's endowment, the fascinating history of the Indians and the archaeologists and RRC volunteer discoveries, you'll want to listen to this episode again. Anissa is a wildlife ecologist and conservationist whose passions include a love of nature, a love of wildlife, and a love of teaching. You will hear in Anissa's voice her happiness in finding her dream job on Pine Island. And now, here's Anissa. Well, thank you, Anissa Kareem. We're so happy you're here. Um, You said yes to the podcast. We really appreciate that. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, We're excited to talk about the Randell Research Center. But so we want to start with you okay. and talk about you and your background. So okay. could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Absolutely. Um, I uh, have grown up in Florida. I moved to Florida when I was five years old. So I actually grew up on the East Coast. I went to uh, school in Broward County. I'm a member of the first graduating class of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And um, while I was growing up, um, while we didn't have a huge opportunity to explore the outdoors, in Florida, because my parents worked so hard, I always had a love of nature. I always had a love of animals, like so many people, you know, but I also had a love of literature. And so uh, when I found myself at the University of Florida as an undergraduate, I actually got there and I, I was there to be an English major. Um, I loved literature. I wanted to be an author um, of some sort. And so I started down this path of being an English major, but I was also a teenager, you know, also <laughs> first, time in, uh, first time in college. And you have these general education requirements you have to take, right? So I heard of this really cool class. It's called Wildlife Issues. It's uh, in the middle of the day, uh, you know, and it's a great class and it's not so hard. So for me, who was writing a lot at the time, I thought that would be a great way to incorporate my love of nature, my love of wildlife, learn a little bit about you know the professionals that work in the field and and you know maybe have a little bit of an easier class so i can um concentrate on other things well that was the proverbial light bulb moment um for me this is this is what i want to do i don't want to be an author i can read and write as much as i want throughout my life but this is what I want to do, be a wildlife ecologist. So I immediately changed my uh, changed my major. What year um, was that when you changed? Um, I was a sophomore in college. Okay, so that was early. Yeah, it was pretty early. I think it was probably probably towards the end of my sophomore year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's right before you get your associate's degree. So I was finishing out my general education requirements. So um, I became a wildlife ecologist and very quickly started taking classes that just amazed me on how much we knew and how much we didn't know about the natural world around us. So I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Wildlife Ecology and Conservation from the University of Florida, and I came to Southwest Florida then for the very first time. I became an intern with the Conservancy of Southwest Florida in Naples, and that is where I gained my my love for environmental education, because all through uh, my undergraduate education, we were talking about and learning about research in wildlife ecology and conservation. And so that's where I wanted to be. I really wanted to do a lot of research. Um, but as an intern with the Conservancy, you know, a short-term internship doesn't really allow for in-depth research. So environmental education is what um, I ended up doing as an intern. And I, I loved it because that was the another aha moment. In my life, uh, if people don't understand the challenges of the world we live in, uh, they can't necessarily solve them, right? So to mm-hmm. understand is to start to um, start to love and start to want to protect more. So, you know, I I um, that's what I did. I, I worked at the conservancy for a little while. I went back uh, and. Uh, Got my master of science in wildlife ecology and conservation, came back to Southwest Florida, had a wonderful opportunity to work for Lee County Parks and Recreation for 12 years. Um, And, you know, then I got a call that, hey, uh, the University of Florida is looking for an operations manager at Randall Research Center. And I just couldn't pass up the opportunity. It's one of those jobs uh, that in my field comes by very very rarely. And I had to try. So that's, that's how I got here. Um, I've been in Florida for my whole life, but, um, this opportunity to combine, uh, the natural world, the knowledge of the natural world and kind of layer it with how the Calusa um, and you know, even, um, the pioneers of our Island, uh, used and understood the natural uh, world around them. It's, it's really been a fantastic experience. Mm-hmm. And with your love of education, this is perfect. Yeah, yeah, world. I love speaking to people about things I'm passionate about. So, yeah, it's great. And
0: the children come there.
2: Yes, the yes, we are. And- we're we're one of those um, places where not a lot of people visit because of the proximity. It is, you know, for people on the mainland, <laughs> right. uh, it's kind of a long drive, right? Um, and so, um, in Florida, fourth grade is where, in the Sunshine State, standards kids learn about indigenous peoples. And so we have um, an endowment from the Sear family, which allows us to pay for educators and for buses to bring fourth grade kids from title one schools to Randall research center, to learn about the indigenous peoples that lived here, right on this land where they live. Wow. Um, And our biggest challenge is proximity. We still have to get the kids there and back in time, uh, you know during the school days so those buses can make the other trips they need to make but it's really been amazing to see how much these kids um want to learn more about the people that came before them so it's great oh that's wonderful
0: now did you know about pine island before the position opened
2: up i did know about it so when i first got uh here um as an intern you know in the nineteen hundreds, <laughs> 1998 <laughs> with the conservancy of southwest florida um i I wanted to explore, uh, the area that I had just moved to. And, uh, when you, when you intern with the conservancy, you kind of come and you have instant friends just waiting because all the interns are about the same age and have about the same kind of, um, things they're interested in. So we all started exploring, you know, we went to Manatee park, we went to a corkscrew, we went to Fakahatchee and, uh, we came to Pine Island, um, so I had heard about it. I'd been on the island. I'd been to Randell Research Center, oh. certainly before. Um, it's one of those places where people um, people just hear how awesome it is, and then you take a, take a drive out. But um, bef- before I'd interviewed for the job, it had probably been about eight years before I'd been to the research center, so... I took another quick trip (laughs) before my interview just to make sure my, uh, my memory coincided with what was on the ground. It may not have changed an awful lot
0: in nine years or maybe it
2: had. Well, there were some really nice improvements. I have to say the grounds looked fantastic. And, um, but yeah, I mean, generally the place was about the same concept, right? So it was great.
1: So you mentioned proximity and it it generates a a question or I guess sometimes even a joke that a lot of people have. It's like, You never visit the stuff in your own backyard. Like we dream about driving three and four hours to go do something. And we were guilty of that. We lived in Chicago for a period of time. We never did the Chicago River tour until we (laughs) went back as a tourist. Right. You're
2: like, oh. So do you track
1: who comes? In other words, is there the Southwest Florida suffer from that where you get people from other parts of Florida, Europeans, et cetera, possibly – more than you get locals
2: yeah absolutely okay. that that definitely happens and you know um i think that's human nature yeah it's one of those things where I'm like ah, i'll get there when i get there because <laughs> i'm going to be here and then i'll get mm-hmm. there when i get there um so we are actually we have a concerted effort um before hurricane ian um hit uh, we were starting to plan um a pine islanders day where cool. we would invite locals um to Randall Research Center, try to have uh, maybe a food truck or something, some activities for kids, some um, you know displays for adults. Just an educational afternoon for Pine Islanders to come and um, take advantage of this amazing place to have right here and mm-hmm. share in the heritage because it, it is an amazing place and it really informs us about how people lived on the land and it's very similar to the way that Pine Islanders talk about their island and how they live on the land. You know, Pine Island is obviously it's a barrier island just like Sanibel and Captiva and Fort Myers beach. And, but it's a different feel when you come here, it's a feel, the feeling is different, right? So, um, we want people to people to kind of take advantage of that, you know, like uh, to, to take solace. And yeah, this is an amazing place. It is a little bit different. And there's a reason the Calusa were here. There's a reason that the second largest township of the Calusa is located right here on this Island, you know? And so, um, so we, we will plan that again. We will we will um, have a Pine Islanders Day when we're able to to invite Pine Islanders to come um, because it's something that they should really be proud of, I believe. Um, and um, so hopefully we can get over some of that proximity issue um, when we do that.
1: Well, also, too, and, and not to downplay the history and the significance of all that, um, but if nothing else, just to be outside and walking the trails and there's some beautiful views and stuff like that. So if you think about there's other trails or hiking uh, opportunities here, you know, it's just an additional one. It just comes with really kind of those added benefits that you, you don't get in some of the other
2: places it absolutely does it absolutely does it has um and we allow it is day use only it (laughs) is walking only you can't ride your bike there but you can walk your dog there and for a lot of people they really value those areas where they can take their dog and um you know it's you have to walk your dog on a leash but that's um that's just being respectful of the the other people there (laughs) but i do have a rule if you have a dog and you bring it to the center and I'm there, I have to pet the dog. So <laughs> find me and I'll pet your dog and wish That's it well. good to know. Yeah. <laughs> it's my personal rule.
1: So you mentioned the interview. Um, what was that time frame? So in other words, you know, when did you get the job? How long have you sure. been there, et cetera?
2: Um, I interviewed for the job in May of 2001. I was offered the position Um, soon after. It was early May um, and uh, started uh, June of 2001. Um, And so we were actually, um, at the time, we were starting to come down, um, come off of a lot of the COVID restrictions. So the trail had just recently opened back up again. We were once again um, opening our classroom and having our displays out for people uh, to see. And um, we had our gift shop open. So we were just kind of starting to open back up in full in June of twenty one. Yeah. Um, and that's the process. That's when I came on board.
0: And you came on board during turbulent time. I mean it was COVID and then Ian and Yeah. You know, and
2: yeah. It, it was um it was a turbulent time, you know. I think it's one of those things that it's just an example of how life goes. It's this amazing opportunity, but nothing works in a linear fashion. It's always <laughs> kind of topsy-turvy. So yeah, so we were coming down off of COVID and then um, we had some, because of COVID, you know, a lot of people had um, changes in staff. So we had changes in staff. We had a lot of new personnel that were being trained. Um, not that we have a lot of people working there, but when 30%, 40% of your staff is new. It's a big deal, right? right. I had the wonderful opportunity. So my predecessor um, was Cindy Bear, and she was at the Randall Research Center for quite a while, did an amazing job. And so uh thanks to the, you know, the people at the Florida Museum and the University of Florida, we actually got to um kind of spend a month together, her last month and my first month, so we could really go over that that overlap really, really helped me, not only in of terms of process but in terms of um the way you know kind of the how we do things and the reason we do things the whys aren't always explained right when you're mm-hmm. reading a policy sure. it's usually this is what we do and how we do it but the whys aren't always explained and that's so important to understand how an organization kind of views this place views you know yeah certain aspects but, and it's hard to follow so, i mean i think she was here 10 years or yeah i, I forget i it. think i think it was a little more than 10
0: years yeah, yeah. And that's hard to follow. That was so nice that you got to spend a month with her. Yes,
2: and I, I had a lot of, uh, I have a lot of respect for Cindy. She did such an amazing job at Randall Research Center. And one of the, one of the amazing things that she did, along with um, the archaeologists that started this, this um, Randall Research Center, uh, Bill Markward and Karen Walker, they really understood the value of having people from different parts of life, being volunteers there and being docents. So they spent a lot of time and energy um, creating this training program for volunteers. And our docents, I believe as a result, are one of the best, uh, some of the best docents that I've seen uh, regardless of place. Um, I've been to a lot of museums and a lot of places that that use docents and um, they always usually have a good training program. But our docents are fantastic. And um, so I think that that's really one of the one of the best parts of Cindy's legacy is that she she started this or she didn't start it necessarily, but she really enhanced this program. We have amazing volunteers and we couldn't work without them because they are they are our workforce, really. Um, especially in season, they keep us going. I was going to ask if you had volunteers in off-season. We have a few volunteers in off-season, and they're usually there um, when we need them. Um, They have a lot of other, you know, we have volunteers that live on the island or close by, but they have other things happening in their lives too. So usually if we need them, it's for... a tabling event, or if we're kind of strategizing about what new displays we might need. And I try to include all our volunteers, whether they're here or not, you know, we try to have kind of a hybrid volunteer uh, input session. But usually the summer is when um, we take our vacations, when our volunteers are out of town, Mm -hmm. when we're kind of doing a lot of the groundwork to make sure the grounds are kept up for uh, the upcoming season. And some of the planning, we're putting our calendar together, you know, when are we going to do our... Harbor History Tours with Captiva Cruises. When are we going to bring the fourth graders down? You know, when are we going to have our lecture series start and end? Then you think you might have the guided tours? Yes, yes. And we actually had uh, guided tours after Ian as well. We currently have only about a thousand feet of trail open. Um, And when the whole thing's open, it's a little over a mile. But We do have shortened guided tours that our docents are happy to give. The history of the Calusa is best given when you have the entire trail, when you can actually go to Randell Mound and stand on top Mm -hmm. and look at the estuary and talk about, you know, the benefits of the estuary, the, you know, the defense the mounds provided, things like that. But um, even so, our volunteers are pretty good at describing what you would see. And it's just a, a nice different aspect of visiting a natural area learn about the plants you learn a little bit about the animals but you also learn about the indigenous history so we've
1: talked about the research center maybe you can back up and tell us how it came to be sure uh, since i think i think it's the name is so synonymous with pine island but i'm yeah. not sure everybody understands how the whole thing came to uh, clues and outwithstanding but i mean right. the whole the, the dedicated area in the rendells etc
2: absolutely i'd be happy to do so so the rendell research center is part of the university of florida part of the florida museum of natural history uh, the Natural History Museum is in Gainesville, Florida, where the main campus is, um, and we are a program of that. And basically, uh, what happened was there, Don and Pat Randell moved to Pine Island in late 60s. In 1968, Patricia and Donald Randell moved to Pine Island with their son, Ricky, uh, and they had two other uh, children. And when they moved here, they decided that they were going to buy some land and this was going to be where they lived um they also at the time bought a little island just west of us called Jocelyn Island close kind of close to the center um and so don randell's plan was to um was to do some cattle farming some citrus and uh, to develop Jocelyn Island, um, and that's what he was planning to do. So he went out to Jocelyn Island, and he discovered a mound. He knew he had mounds in his backyard. Donald and Patricia Rendell um, knew exactly what they had in their backyard. They had the means to preserve, um, and they had the the intent to preserve. So they didn't really want to mess with the mounds on their lands, but they bought Jocelyn Island, and that's when they discovered Hey, there's a mound on Jocelyn Island as well, and so at the time they they really wanted to see what was in that mound. They really were curious. Um, they were curious about all of the mounds, really. Um, but when Jocelyn Island was purchased and Don Randall found this mound on the southern side of Jocelyn Island, um, it, two things happened. One, uh, there was a news press article about Jocelyn Island and about the mound there, and second. Um, Don Randell asked for an archaeologist to come and map the mound, kind of show show what was there. So that's where Bill Marquart enters the scene um, in 1983. And so when this happens, people start going to Jocelyn Island, members of the public, and start looting the mound. Oh no. And so that to Don Randell was this is this can't happen. This cannot happen. And so that was his, he, he, you know, he wasn't going to develop the island because it was, it did have a mound. Um, he did actually blame the newspaper article for that onslaught of the public, mm-hmm. but he understood that if people knew there were mounds there, there were some people that would respect it and some people who wouldn't. Right. And that's just how life is, right? So he decided at that point that he did want to preserve his mounds. Um but his wife, in 1988, so Bill Marquardt, this was 1983. Eventually, they sold Jocelyn Island to the state. But in 1988, Bill Marquardt was back on the island. Um, and Patricia Randell asked Bill, hey, what, how old are these mounds? And that really was, was the impetus of digging excavations on Randell Research Center currently. Um, on Pine Island, right across the street, you know, mm-hmm. from where the Tarpon Lodge is today. Um, and Bill Marquardt said to her, you know, if you're serious, we'll come down and we will look. Um, and so she said, yes. And so in 1989, they spent 12 days doing a lot of field work. And Bill Marquardt brought with him Karen Walker, who is an amazing zoo archaeologist and coastal archaeologist. And so, um, and she was great at figuring out like all the logistics of where the volunteers would work and how they would work and how they would process all of this information. And that's really the beginning of the relationship between the Randells um, and Bill Marquart and Karen Walker. And as they worked together, they started to understand that once this endeavor was done, there was no... There was no guarantee that these mounds would be protected, mm-hmm. right? And so that's when they started talking about, hey, how about making this part of your legacy and donating this to the University of Florida as a research center? And that's how Rendell Research Center came to be. And I think it was pretty serendipitous. It's these people, Don and Pat Rendell, who move here, who are so interested in conservation and preservation. They're interested in Uh, cultural heritage and indigenous heritage. They wanted to know what was in these mounds. And they happened to purchase the land where the second largest Calusa Township existed. (laughs) You know, there were mounds all over Pine Island. There were mounds all over Florida. And a lot of them have been taken down. And certainly the mounds that we have on Randall Research Center are not the original size or extent of what they were. But uh, when the Randalls got here, whatever was taken down stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's how the preservation started, is by this initiative, by these, uh, these two people uh, saying, hey, we want to preserve what is left. And that's, that's how it came to be.
1: So we've heard a lot about the mounds. Knowing what we know today, what was the significance of the original purpose to those mounds that we now find, you know, in these areas sure. that are available to be looked at and understood?
2: The purpose of the mounds really was to create a town, a community for the Calusa, we believe. And so if you look at a LIDAR map, a map that shows basic topographical kind of features, Mm -hmm. you see that there are mounds all over Randall Research Center, not just the obvious big ones, but the small ones too. We have um, the benefit of... Frank Hamilton Cushing, having come to Pine Island in the late 1800s. A lot of people are familiar with, a lot of people that are interested in archaeology are familiar with the Key Marco cat and the masks that were found on Marco Island in the late 1800s. Frank Hamilton Cushing from the Smithsonian was um, was asked to come to Marco Island at that time um, to to basically make his amazing discovery. But on his way to Marco, he came to Pine Island. And when he did that, he noted the size and the height of Brown's mound. He noted how large this area was. And while he didn't have time to go through it and map it all out, he did make a significant note in his notebooks that, Hey, there's something here. We need to investigate this more. So I don't think the Randells actually knew that he had been on their property, you know, Mm hundred, a hundred years before, but, um, certainly when archaeologists saw this area and they started doing a little more research they found those notebooks Um, and so I guess to answer your question I kind of just kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent there I'm sorry but to answer your question yeah the mounds they had various purposes the Calusa we believe had kind of a I don't want to call it a caste system, but certainly there were two tiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were noble people and there were commoners. And so the noble people were able to live higher up on the mounds. One of the benefits of living on a mound. And, and so the Calusa, they, they were these amazing indigenous people that did not have an agrarian society, but were still able to create a very sophisticated community. And so that, that concept alone was really foreign uh, to a lot of people. Because when I went to school, I was told, you need an agrarian society to be complex. The Calusa did not have that, but they were still very complex. And so these mounds enabled them to not only um, kind of have the separation between noble and commoner, but for all practical purposes, they were able to get high enough to look out across the water. It, it was a defense mechanism. That If you visit Randall Research Center today, The water doesn't seem super close. It's right across the street. There's Waterfront Drive, and then across from our parking lot, you have the Tarpon Lodge. But the Tarpon Lodge wasn't there in 1895. It wasn't there when the Colusa, certainly when the Colusa lived here. uh, That Waterfront Drive area and where the Tarpon Lodge is, American Bible School, all that area, um, that was built up from mounds taken down. So the mounds were right on the water. These huge mounds were right on the water. And our estuary, this combination of fresh and salt water, we know is awesome for um, fish, right? It's this amazing biologically productive area, but it's also pretty shallow. So all of these boats that the Spanish were bringing in, that the English were bringing in, these huge ships could not not, um, actually use our estuary as a transport. They had to get in their canoes. The Calusa could see them coming, they could see their canoes coming. It was great defense and actually, the estuary pro- provides amazing fishing. So they were right there on their fishing grounds, right? They were harvesting the fish. They were able to defend themselves. They actually used to do a lot of trading. So they would have, uh, they would trade with uh, like Cuban fishermen, people from the north. It was a great area to be able to live in a trade route and for defense. And then, you know, when tropical storms or hurricanes or whatever, uh, you get out of the storm surge, it, the mounds we don't believe were vegetated they had small home gardens they had right. structures on the mounds but um other than that there weren't a lot of there wasn't a lot of vegetation so that leads us to also to believe that they um they minimized the incidence of biting insects by living that high up
0: oh, and they weren't into agriculture
2: too right that's right that's and, right which was not common they were yes. they fished that's right? right they fished they fished and so these are the preconceived notions that we bring as, I mean, everybody, regardless of where you're from or or what you know, everybody's got a preconceived notion, right, of some other place or some other people. And so that was the same. So in this, in 1895, 1896, when Frank Hamilton Cushing came back with all of these amazing artifacts um, to the Smithsonian, he came back uh, with a lot of really cool things, the Key marco cap, the deer head, the wooden a woodpecker tablet, you know, all these cool things. One of the things he did come back with also was half of a, a sunray venus clam shell with the etching of a human. Mm. And so, at the time, the folks at the Smithsonian said, "Oh no, no, this is impossible. These savages could not represent themselves in art, you know." And clearly, they were artists. They had they had surpassed just looking for food, water, shelter, space. They were at a place in their community where they could build these mounds, build a canal all the way across Pine Island, express themselves in art, trade with people from all over North America. Yet the people at the Smithsonian at the time didn't know any of this and just said, hey, these these guys couldn't have done this. They accused Frank Hamilton of Cushing of forgery and he was exonerated, but that was the preconceived notion. So then years later, archaeologists still have this preconceived notion anthropologists you have to have an agrarian society for for an you know to create a social complexity a political complexity well that's not true <laughs> you know the calusa proved that there are other indigenous peoples that live on the water that have proved that they aren't they weren't nomads they were able to stay in one place they had a hierarchy of community they had a they had deities they had rulers
0: they had a, a immensely complex and they had a nice
1: climate, yes. Yeah, they had a great <laughs> climate. No, no AC, though. No,
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, you talked about the trade. So, other than you know, England, France, Spain, etc., everybody trying to claim Florida for their own. Um, I'm gonna go with the Spaniard spoke Spanish. And it, do we know like how the trade was accomplished? In terms, I was, do we know? Was there a language for the Calusa?
2: Yeah. So we believe that the Calusa did have their own language. Um we don't know, well, we don't believe it was a written language, it was okay. a spoken language. Mm-hmm. And but they were, for all intents and purposes, they were masters of trade. They um they were trading with people from all over. So they did pick up other languages. Okay. And in fact, one of their one of their um interactions with Ponce de Leon they spoke Spanish to him. They knew he was coming. It wasn't a surprise, right? <laughs> so they had all of these. So when you trade, when you have these uh, trade networks, you also then build communication networks. You also mm-hmm. then build networks of information. And so when that happened, they knew They knew that the Spanish were coming. They had heard what had happened in the islands. They knew what was ha- about to or what the intent was for them. So... When they met Ponce de Leon for the first time, they weren't surprised at all, and they spoke Spanish to Ponce de Leon. Hmm.
1: And do, do we know what was traded back and forth? Like, what did the Calusa get out of the trade, and then what did they exchange?
2: So, yeah, we know that part of what was traded were things like— Okay, so, so in the north, we have found lightning whelks, these whelks that are very common to our waters here in the Gulf, these left-handed whelks. Um, not very common anywhere else. Um, so it was considered um, almost sacred to some of the indigenous peoples in North America. So we have found lightning welts in other parts. Here in Southwest Florida, we didn't have any hard stone or hard metal. And so that was something that the Calusa really, and, and all the people in, in Florida really, all the indigenous peoples really valued because that was something that they could create tools with, mm-hmm. create jewelry with. And so there was um, things of that nature, um, just basically utilitarian
1: Interesting items.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, as your role, you have a huge role there, yeah.
0: but um, were there any challenges for you when you first started? You know, when you're first hired, sometimes your new boss will say, this is, these are expectations. Here's, yeah. here's some challenges for you. Was there anything?
2: Yeah. You know, I, um, when I work, in an environment, I really like to get the people. I, I like to get to know the people I'm working with and working for. And so, the people I'm working with, that was easy. They were right there with <laughs> me, right. But the people I'm working for, they're in Gainesville. And so, a lot of the a lot of the kind of the things you have to do right, uh, the fiscal policies, the way you process a receipt. You know, um, who who gets uh, who gets your travel request, things like that. You know, I knew the email addresses, but everybody's got their own personal likes and just how they do their job well. And I really, when I start to work with people, I try to understand their mindset, um, to help me communicate with them better. That's just, I don't I don't think it's a conscious thing. It's just how I operate. And so that was difficult for me because not seeing someone, not hearing, you know, the temper of their voice, not hearing what, you know, it's all email and that's fine. So that was a challenge. And I really, um, that was one of the things, you know, Ian was so horrible. Mm-hmm. But once Ian hit, I was actually going to Gainesville once every six weeks for a little while to just give them updates, proper updates. And we were kind of um, making strategies about what, what we were going to recover first and things like that, what we were going to do with the um, the collection we had down here and how, we, how to move it to Gainesville and things like that. And so that really helped me because I was able to, shake someone's hand and say hey thanks right. for helping me out with you know whatever i was you know whatever they were doing but we have an amazing support staff as part of the florida museum our our tech people stuff like that you know like the it folks who never get any credit but they keep us going and so i just i got to meet them and say thanks and to see their faces to me that was great the other challenge though on on site certainly was to quickly in the very first season to quickly learn how important our volunteers were. I knew certainly that our volunteers were extremely important to the way we ran um, our public-facing part of Randell Research Center day to day. Um, But to understand, I I don't think I understood fully how incredibly smart and dedicated our volunteers are. And so uh, that to me, I don't think it was a challenge. It was, you know, I didn't want to miss that opportunity to learn from them. And so Mm -hmm. That's what I did. And honestly, one challenge was, you know, it's it's human nature. But Cindy Bear was amazing. She left this amazing legacy and I wanted to live up to it. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that was a pressure that was I needed to make sure that the volunteers knew that I was as dedicated to the Randall Research Center and um, appreciative of their work as Cindy was. Um, And she did such a great job that, it, you know, large shoes to fill right big shoes to fill but um her being there my first month her last month really helped with that but that you know that certainly was at the back of my mind as well it's like i i can't let these folks down they've put so much into randall research center certainly i wanted to do what's right by randall research center what the university of florida what the florida museum expected to do my job but to do it well to make sure that the volunteers understood that I appreciate right. them, and that they they really are so important was important to me. Do you still go back every six weeks or what? I don't. No. I don't. But um, we have had the opportunity to get a few grants. We got a a, a rapid uh, grant from the National Science Foundation, and so we also recently got a Biodiversity Institute grant that we're going to start working on um, very soon. So once that happens, I believe we'll be going back to Gainesville. Good. Again, yeah, you get to see them in person, yeah, yeah. And actually, our director, our current director, Charlie Cobb, and our assistant director, Michelle Lefebvre, they come down here quite often. Mm-hmm. So, I do see them, it's the other people around them, you know. Uh, but they they come often, and I, I, I talk to them a lot <laughs> every week, which That's is good. which is what the way I want it. So,
1: do we have an idea when and how the Clusa came into existence?
2: We really don't, we know that they were. Um, people here for a very long time and where you start calling them the Calusa, Mm -hmm. that's really a difficult question to answer. I don't think there is an answer to that, but this, um, at some point there were people that arrived here and decided to stay here instead of continue on. Right. And so I guess that's where the Calusa started, but it's hard to know when those people stayed and when other people left where Mm -hmm. that continuum is. We have records of uh, human remains in the area for, you know, we know the Calusa were on Pineland on Pine Island for uh, probably about for 2000 years, but uh, we don't know um, and we know in certainly surrounding islands, Yusepa, Calusa Island, there are all these islands around that have mounds on them. Kayakosta has mounds on them. So there were Calusa out there as well. Uh, and they probably lived out there before they lived on Pine Island. Okay. The record shows. But it, it's it's a really difficult question to answer because you think about how many mounds are out there and how much we actually have in terms of evidence. It's minuscule, right? It's like a glass of water in an ocean okay. <laughs> is what we have. And so really, it, it would be almost impossible to excavate every mound. And really, there's, there's some considerations there. You have to take into consideration that um, some of these mounds are burial mounds, and we don't yes, want to disturb sure. the ancestors of uh, the Calusa. Um, and so we want to pay respect and do things in the right way. And to excavate is to have to have a really good reason to do so. So we don't have all of the answers. Um, so, But we know that the Calusa were here for over 20 centuries. Uh, our country has been around for two and a half centuries, and the Calusa were here for over 20 centuries. And so they made this their home for a very long time. Um, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we can learn something from how they lived.
1: And then with the exploration of Florida and the introduction of European diseases, do we know about when they started to dwindle and Kind of ceased to be of exist- Yeah, in existence?
2: I, I think it started almost immediately, as soon as they really came into contact with the Spanish. So in the fifteen, you know, fifteen sixties, fifteen twenty-one, I think is when Ponce de Leon got okay. here. And um so the, immediately we see a decline in the population because of disease, uh, not necessarily because it's because the Spanish were never able to subsume the Calusa culture. Mm-hmm. The Calusa always fended off the Spanish, but disease certainly was a huge part of it and that started to happen almost immediately
0: well let's now we've talked about ian yeah so and you said that there's no time time frame for when um it'll be you know the trail will be recovered completely there's
2: not we're working on that diligently so being an archaeological research center means that we take archaeology seriously obviously and so when you have things like just just imagine what the island looked like after Ian. Certainly there was a lot of debris, right? A lot of vegetative debris and some uh, damage to buildings and homes. Some, some totally disappeared. Um, but there were a lot of trees that fell over, entire trees that fell over with their root balls exposed, which means that those root balls that were underground are now above ground. And that means it becomes archaeological. Anything underground is archaeological. So with those large trees that have fallen um, on top of the mounds it is a safety issue because of the cavernous holes they have left and it's an archaeological issue because you're now dealing with an archaeological root ball basically right. um, so we are working with the state uh, on how to uh, basically resolve that Um, one of the things that happened when we were gifted randell mound is the university of florida and the florida museum realized hey Without having operation money, without having money to actually maintain the land, we really can't preserve this properly. So there was uh, an agreement made to sell the land to the state. So the Randalls knew about this and they agreed with it. So they gifted the land to the University of Florida. The University of Florida then sold the land to the Bureau of Archaeological Management in Gainesville, sorry, in Tallahassee at the state. Mm -hmm. So it is state property. So we are working with the state on what happens to these archaeological resources. Uh, In the meantime, we have other things like footbridges and platforms that need to be rebuilt. Uh, Ian was such a huge impact to our area that uh, the good contractors the licensed contractors are very busy. And they have work to do for years and years. And so because of the proximity of Randall Research Center, because of the size and the scope of the projects we have, they're not huge projects. They're projects that are hindering us from moving further, but they're not projects that a contractor is going to drop everything to come and do. Right. Uh, and we, we don't want to jump in the front of line, you know, certainly people well, plus have,
0: you want to go slowly, right? Yeah. When you yeah. can get in there. Cause you have to be careful.
2: Yeah. And you know, um, it costs money to do these things um we don't we didn't just have extra money laying around uh to rebuild these things um so we have to do it in a in a way that makes sense. so we had to make sure that our the first thousand feet of trail that we were open um that that was not only open but clean and safe and remains that way while we're working with debris and other things in the other parts of the trail That's interesting so season
1: not too far away what kind of programs do you think you'll be able to be offering um you know given some of the limitations with the you know the damages and the right. safety et cetera.
2: so what we're what we're definitely going to do is we're partnering with captiva cruises again to offer our harbor history tour and it's uh um and joanne i see that you have a copy of it um Dinesh patterson's book so it's based on Dinesh patterson's book a tour of the islands Um, And so we partner with Captiva Cruises to offer this harbor history tour for people. It's usually, you know, on a Tuesday or Wednesday, but actually um, Captiva Cruises has been kind enough to say, yeah, let's do it on a Saturday. We have a lot of teachers who want to do this. We have a lot of working folks who want to do this. So let's do a couple on Saturday. So we'll definitely be doing that. We're going to try to bring smaller school groups onto the uh, property. We're very lucky that Um, We have a great relationship with the Cape Coral Museum of History. And the Cape Coral Museum of History last year allowed us to do our field trips on their site. They're closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. And they said, hey, if you want to come on a Monday or Tuesday, um, actually, you can come anytime. But since we're closed, then the whole place is yours and you guys can use the entire facility to uh, do your school program so nice. They were fantastic about it, and their new executive director—well, I guess she's not new anymore—but Janelle has been fantastic. She's dynamic and she's she's really, really, you know, let's roll up our sleeves and get this done kind of person. So um, I actually just heard from her again, and she said, "Hey, I know you still have infrastructure issues. If you want to do that again, you're welcome to do it. Let's just figure out some dates." And so we might do that with some larger schools. But with some smaller schools like Pine Island Elementary, if they want to come out to the center, we'll certainly accommodate them and maybe some schools from Sanibel. Uh we also will have a lecture series again. We have some exciting new research happening at the University of Florida and the Florida Museum. And so I will um I'm I've made my invitations. I haven't heard any um you know, we haven't set dates yet, but we have some great um people at the Florida Museum, some great scientists that have some interesting research going on. So I will bring those folks down. Um, and it, you, those those lectures are usually on a Saturday morning. Um, we open it up to members first because our, our, our area is not huge. We can't accommodate a lot of people. So we open it up to our members first um, if they want to attend those lectures. And then usually about 10 days before the lecture, if there are any empty seats available, Um, I usually actually put it on our calendar on our website and post it on our Facebook page and ask people if they want to come, they're welcome to. I bet it's sold. I mean, it's sold
0: out, especially if you put it on Facebook, that's the key. Yeah.
2: Yeah. As soon as it goes on (laughs) Facebook, any, any leftover seats are gone. I was so
0: glad to see you had a Facebook just for RCC, you know?
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah. So Randall Research Center, um, the Facebook page is really dedicated not only to archeology, span but to history and ecology, just like, the center itself is dedicated to those things. Uh, We live in a beautiful part of Florida and, you know, we have some awesome plants. We have some great wildlife. And so when we have uh, a plant that's blooming or in fruits uh, at the Randall Research Center, uh, then likely other people are seeing it in Southwest Florida. And so it's a way for people to see what's in bloom, what's in fruit, and um, Mm -hmm. learn a little bit bit more about native plants because that's really important. Uh, If we're going to save this... (laughs) Say this place. Native plants are going to be a huge part of it. Yes, so. huge. I
1: remember a couple of years ago, and I'm really bad on time, word got around the Pine Island Photography Club that there were woodpeckers up there. And I know any number of the photographers <laughs> were making their drive up there trying yeah. to catch um, some pictures of the woodpeckers. So it is an amazing tool that like that word can spread through tools yeah. like that compared to the old you know you had to create a flyer or do a mailer which right. was quite expensive.
2: Oh yeah absolutely uh social media has um I know a lot of uh, a lot of downfalls but certainly for information and that's the thing social media reaches everyone it doesn't matter how old you are mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what culture you're from or what time of, you know, you don't need a subscription while well, you do, but it's free. Uh, but, you know, like that, if you're if you're looking for something about your about your community, then you can find it on social media. So that's that's one of the things that I try to keep up to date is our Facebook page. So people know what's happening and mm-hmm. I know what's happening at the research center and share share uh, research articles from. Uh, other parts of Florida about archaeology or uh, share research articles from the Florida Museum about the research happening there. And you have a newsletter too, I think. We do have a newsletter, yes. We have a newsletter. We're actually uh, working with the newsletter designer. She's finishing up the last draft of the one that's uh, coming out. Uh, So we do have a newsletter. The newsletters are available. The newsletters are really great. It really takes you to the history of Randall Research Center. Um, And they're all on our website. Uh, If you go to the Florida Museum website and search for Randall Research Center, um, you can look at our newsletters and they're pretty informative and pretty well written, I think. And then you can subscribe right on the website too. You can, too. That's, a, yeah. that's right. You can subscribe yeah. to our newsletter. That's very that's
1: handy. Yeah. So in terms of hours, and I know with the working out with the state and the safety, which is, you yeah. know, paramount as well as preserving the that archaeological root ball, I think that might be the first and only time I'll hear that, <laughs> but um, I can be. certainly appreciate the holes and everything like that. Do you know anything about hours for those people who would choose to go there now? Or will you put that on Facebook as you know more? I mean, how do you think how do you see that work part working out?
2: So right now, and this is this is um kind of a function of the time of year it is mm-hmm. and the and the climate. So um, right now, usually from Memorial Day to Halloween, we're open Tuesday through Saturday from 10 to 2. And that's our classroom and our gift shop. Oh, good. Um, The gift shop is yeah, open. Yeah, the gift wondering. shop is open. So good. 10 to 2, Tuesday through Saturday. And then after Halloween, so November 1st, we will open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4. But the trail itself, even just the, the 1,000 foot that's open, the trail itself is open sunrise to sunset every day. Oh, cool. okay. So we don't lock our parking lot. We have gates on our parking lot. We did, after Ian, lock the parking lot. We sure. left it unlocked during Ian. Um in case people had to move their cars there because we want, there's a little bit higher ground than uh, some of the folks around us. So we left it mm-hmm. open. But once, once we realized that none of the folks used it, which is fine, <laughs> we <laughs> locked it. Um. So, but right now our parking lot is not, not locked. Okay. You're welcome to go on the trail. We do ask that you adhere to the posted sign. So if there's a, if there's a sign that says no public access beyond this point, please respect that. It's for, Public safety, Mm -hmm. Um, it is, you know, it's one of those things that we take very seriously. Not only the archaeological aspect, but the public safety aspect. We want people on the trails. We want to open our trail up. We want people to enjoy our trails. Because there are amazing things like woodpeckers and osprey and owls and things like that. We want people to see those things, too. Um, But for safety, we have to make sure that we're allowing that only when it's safe for everybody. So It is great for photography. It is. It absolutely is, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we, you know, we know that people walk there early in the morning and late in the evening, so uh, we want to make sure that they're still able to do that, walk their dog and things like that. So Mm -hmm. the trails are open, 1,000-foot sunrise to sunset. And I think we
0: covered the communication, how to get in contact with you. That's all on your website or Facebook page. Yes, that's right. And um, I think, unless there's something else you want, is
2: there anything you want to bring up that we've missed in Not necessarily, but I think uh, for folks that are listening to this podcast that haven't ever been to Randall Research Center or it's been a while, um, please come out and take another look. We'd love to have you there. Uh, the Florida Museum is committed to making sure that the Randall Research Center uh, is successful and prosperous for years to come. And we have some very exciting things uh, coming up in the future. Our director and our assistant director um, and myself, we are looking forward to uh, making the next um few decades of Randall Research Center just as exciting as they were in the past. And um we want Pine Islanders to be part of that exciting way forward. So please come on out and uh take a walk. Well thank you, Anissa. This
0: has been wonderful. I really it's enjoyed amazing. it. Thank I can you. I I feel your spirit with and your enthusiasm oh, and, you so and how much you enjoy this and love your dream come true.
2: That's right. You know <laughs> that's that, right. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too bye.
1: We hope you enjoyed our Pine Island Experience podcast. If you have any ideas for us, people to interview, or any comments, please feel free to email them to us at pineislandexperience at gmail.com. That's pineislandexperience, all one word, at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us, and you may subscribe to this podcast using all the major catchers like... Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. And remember, island life is a constant vacation. We'll see you on the next podcast.